America's incredible prosperity was built atop a foundation of free markets and free people. We cannot allow left-wing ideologues to undermine that foundation. But with inflation on the rise and a struggling market, many in America's political class are attempting to recycle their failed socialist ideas. National Review's Capital Record podcast is standing in the gap, providing you with the arguments and analysis you need to defend our economic system. Financier and NRI trustee David Barnson hosts interviews with the nation's top business leaders, entrepreneurs, and financial commentators as they provide a practical and moral vindication of America's capitalist way of life. With guests such as Larry Kudlow, Steve Forbes, and Art Laffer, Capital Record invites you to tune in for top-level economic commentary you can't get anywhere else. Join the conversation on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. Commercial shipping under attack, signs of life for Nikki Haley in New Hampshire, and the desecration of a congressional conference room. We'll discuss all that and more on this episode of The Editors. I'm Noah Rothman. Rich is out today, but in his absence, we're joined by Charles C.W. Cook and Jim Garrity. You are, of course, listening to a National Review podcast. Our sponsor this episode is Made in Cookware. More on them later on. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. If you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So zoom in on the Red Sea. Uh, like so many other Iranian cutouts, the Houthi militia group, which is in control of portions of Yemen on the Arabian Peninsula, has been firing rockets and drones with reckless abandon at targets all over the place since the October 7th massacre. Uh, but unlike some other proxy groups aligned with Tehran, the Houthis have been doing it with total impunity. There's been no response from the administration. They've treated it mostly like a nuisance, responding to distress signals from commercial vessels and uh, intercepting as many drones and rockets as our naval assets in the region can. Uh, but this weekend, uh, two container ships were struck by uh, Houthi ordnance, set ablaze, and that prompted a bunch of major shipping firms, some of the biggest international shipping giants in the business, Maersk, MSC, British Petroleum, they're all rerouting their ships away from Houthi territory. And this should be a five-alarm fire. The Bab el-Mandib Strait, which is where the Horn of Africa and the Arabian Peninsula meet, is this really narrow waterway that leads into the Red Sea and the Suez Canal. We're not talking about a minor shipping lane here. There's no replacing the Suez Canal. Billions of dollars of global commerce are at stake here. And moreover, I would say, American hegemony, the preservation of maritime navigation rights, is one of the biggest things associated with American geopolitical dominance. Restoring the guarantee by the U.S. Navy of free navigation rights should be priority one for this White House. But Charlie, it doesn't seem to be. The administration announced the formation of an international coalition of Western naval powers to try to restore uh, deterrence in the strait, but that's a redundancy. Our, our naval assets are already there engaged in that very mission. So I don't see what the point of this is if it's not to restore deterrence through offense, not defense, through not just intercepting volley after volley, but executing and creating some consequences that would raise the stakes of this enterprise for the Houthi militia to stay their hand. Have we seen any indication that the administration is willing to do its job on that front? Let me ask you before I answer that question, Noah, what do you think we should do? Well, first of all, I don't think we're going to restore deterrence by executing what the administration has done so far, which is uh, attacking these uh, Iran-aligned militias, these Shiite militias in Syria and Iraq proportionally. They're executing these slaps on the wrists, and that's had absolutely no effect on the tempo of operations against American forces. And I suspect if they were to do the same thing, target a target a, a position, a rocket position in inside Yemen, operated by the Houthis, or some infrastructure on the coast from where these you know these raids are being executed, I don't think that would restore deterrence. I think you have to go after Iran. 
All of this is coming from Iran. And Iran responds when it gets hit in the face by backing down. It did so under Reagan. It did so under Trump. The, the, the regime seems to recognize the peril that it faces when it gets into a direct conflict with the United States. And I think that's all that would restore stability and security in this region. As dangerous as that may be. No, I'm I'm fairly hawkish on this. I just wondered what you thought, given you have greater expertise than I do. It is, I think, no secret that the establishment of the U.S. Navy back in the late 18th century was precipitated by attacks on shipping by Barbary pirates in this region of the world. The Navy is not actually mentioned in the U.S. Constitution, but it was created soon after under the theory of implied powers, armed forces, to deal with maritime interference. Now, why? Why was that the first thing that the United States did on the world stage? Because it matters. Now, I have a relatively simple view of foreign policy. And at the heart of it is a belief in the importance of naval supremacy. I don't, of course, I wasn't around then, especially mind whether that naval supremacy is British, as it was between the early 1800s and 1945, or whether it's American. But I do think we need naval supremacy. And this is a part of why, because the world order is contingent upon open sea lanes. The world order consisting of travel, commerce, and peace. And I look at this, and although it carries the word Suez, which I know <laughs> leads certain people to <laughs> uh, bulk at hawkish statements, and I see an attack on that order. This is imperative for the United States and for Europe and for the broader West. And I find it astonishing that until you mentioned it to me, I think yesterday, I hadn't heard about this. This is not, it seems especially important <laughs> in the eyes of our political class. This is not the number one debate, but it may be the most important thing going on in the world right now. So I would absolutely favor um, stepping up uh, hostilities and certainly a massive show of force around that area on the understanding that anyone, be they pirates or the emissaries of a sovereign nation, anyone who interferes with trade or limits access to the Suez Canal or any other shipping lane will be dealt with. Jim, there seems to be something really gross here, and I'm going to um, allow myself to indulge the allegation that was reported by Politico on December 6th that didn't receive nearly enough attention, um, but I found it just grotesque. They allege in that piece, citing Biden administration officials, explaining the reluctance to do to the Houthis what they've done to, example, to for example, Khatib Hezbollah, one of the uh, Iranian proxy groups in Iraq and Syria, striking them directly. There's a bunch of reasons the Houthis are different, according to the Biden administration people. Listen, they're just firing off rockets at Israeli-linked targets, right? So what's the big deal? That's kind of gross, A, and B, not true. Then they said the rockets aren't really all that accurate, so you don't have to worry about them. You can just take them out of the sky. And it turns out they hit a bunch of commercial vessels and disrupt international shipping, so that's not true. So what really sticks out is the allegation, stated sotto voce, that being on the same side as the Saudis is just really gross. It's icky. They don't want to do it. They don't want to have to take sides in the, or the what they believe to be a Yemeni civil war. And they think Saudi Arabia has prosecuted this conflict recklessly and with grotesque disregard for human rights. And so they took the Houthis off the terrorist watch list under Joe Biden, and they've been trying to isolate Saudi Arabia and anathematize it. And to, to go in on the same side as Saudi Arabia would just disrupt that whole ideological project. And so they're 
deferring to the ideological project over the safety and security of U.S. military personnel and the global trade regime? Tell me I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong. That is uh, so insubordinate. Noah, if Joe Biden were here right now, he would tell you, ah, you are wrong, young, young whippersnapper. Let me tell you why. I, on the campaign trail, said that I was going to turn Saudi Arabia into the pariahs that they are. Of course, if they are pariahs, you don't need to turn them into pariahs, but that's fine. You know, and then, ah, you know, we 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 showed them. We we you know started arming the said it was okay for the Houthis, and we stopped selling them arms, and that showed. And then it turns out we needed the oil, so I went over there and I fist bumped MBS because you know we're they're, we're cool with them. They're, they're my buddy now. Um, but, you know, uh, uh, the Washington Post columnist, huh? What? Okay. Anyway, um, there are three aspects of this that feel starkly undercovered in the course of our, our usual media coverage and national uh, conversation. Uh, one aspect, as you mentioned, is the, you know, the, the topic of this, the no response to the Houthi attacks on shipping. I would point out, because yes, the U.S. has had certain limited airstrikes to Iranian proxies uh, due to attacks on our forces in Iraq and Syria. Listeners, did you know there were up to 100 attacks since the Hamas attack? 100? Uh, you know, that, you know, I, this is now nearly daily, several times a day that we're getting attacked by this. So early on in this conflict, Biden said, ha, ah, you know, my message to Iran, don't, don't, don't. Well, that didn't work, Mr. President. You are not deterring them in the slightest. And then the third aspect, which I feel like, again, is just dramatically undercovered when compared to the national media's usual habits is the nine U.S. citizens who remain hostages of Hamas. And, you know, okay, so even if you don't expect it to be like Nightline in 1980 all over again, you know, the national news media traditionally has a, if it bleeds, it leads sort of attitude towards military. Con and there's three three topics, risk to Americans, threats to Americans, attacks on Americans, attacks on shipping that, you know, affects the U.S. economy, and Americans hostages. And in each one of these, I feel like we get what I call check the box journalism. It's not that there's no coverage of this. I don't want anybody that, you know, ah, you know, Jim says they're not covered. Look at these articles. They're there. You just don't see saturation coverage or a drum. I would, I would ask people, how much coverage have you seen of these topics versus the coverage of the IDF making those Hamas fighters strip down to their skivvies to make sure that they didn't have any suicide bombs or weapons on them? Because that got a lot of coverage. And I'm looking at that and saying, ah, down to their underwear. Yeah, that's that's rough. It's, okay, it's probably 10% as bad as what happened to all the Israelis who were murdered and raped by Hamas. But I'm sure it's unpleasant to be, you know, out in your skivvies and, and exposed like that. And, you know, in that case, maybe you shouldn't join Hamas. I'm just kind of thinking if you don't want bad things to happen to you, you join a terrorist group, you launch an attack on Israel, all kinds of bad things can happen. I'm just, that's a little life lesson. It's an NBC, the more you know sort of moment. Um, so my, my, my sense is that the Biden administration keeps getting the advantage of the media becoming strangely disinterested in aspects of an ongoing foreign policy crisis because, you know, there are enough people in news media who remember 1980 and who feel like, oh my God, we covered a foreign policy crisis that made a democratic president look incompetent and look hapless and a the electorate elected the Republican, Ronald Reagan. We can't do that again. So we have to pretend that, ah, this is just not that interesting a story. And they're on the story on page A5. It's not that big a deal. By the way, um, regarding Charlie's question of what should we do? There are two options we're going to put out there. One is I believe we should dismantle the Houthis. And I don't mean like the organization. I mean that we should take the Houthis that are currently shooting at international shipping and we should take them and blast them into small pieces. Uh, we should, there should be some dead Houthis on the ground. That'd be a strong, oh, oh, if we shoot at these, these ships, the, the Americans are going to shoot back? Oh, this is riskier. Oh, wait a second. There are consequences to our actions. Well, maybe we, want to do, we don't want to do this as much. Um, the other thing is you point about in terms of, you know, strikes on Iran because they are effectively Iranian proxies or Iranian agents. Look, Iran's got a lot of assets all around the world. It's got uh, spies. It's got its intelligence network. It's got military trainers in all these foreign countries. These people could meet up with some accidents. These people could, you know, if tomorrow in like four or five different countries, known members of Iranian intelligence all had simultaneous fatal car accidents, you know, the roads are dangerous in these countries. You never know what's going to happen. That would send a very clear signal that we can press a button and we can make your people die and there will be consequences where you least expect it. And so, I, you know, that strikes me as a useful thing to do. Back when the Iranians blew up Kobar Towers in Saudi Arabia, I realize I'm the only person who remembers this kind of ancient history. Um, 
we knew it was the Iranians. We knew it was, you know, we figured out which Iranian agents had been training the guys who did it. And we know what we did. We exposed them. We didn't kill them. We didn't whack them. We didn't try to blow up their stuff. No, no, no. We exposed them. So you know what that meant for all those Iranian spies? Early retirement. Early retirement in Iran. Uh, take that, you know. Anyway, that's my my fuming about, you know, how we handle Iran. Yeah, I, you've articulated the logic of deterrence, which seems to elude this administration for some bizarre reason or another. Um, it's just so fatuous to suggest that responding to attacks on American assets, who these are firing at U.S. ships, who these are taking U.S. $30 million U.S. unmanned aerial vehicles out of the sky and not responding to that obviously has invited more aggression. Dominic Pino noted for the website yesterday that it's totally fatuous to suggest that this is a response to these direct attacks on U.S. interests suggests we're taking sides in the Yemeni civil war, whether you think we should or not. And by the way, one of these sides is attacking Americans and one is not. So it doesn't seem like a hard decision to make. But even if you were confused about that, the moral hazard there, it has no relevance to this question. Taking the Houthis off the terrorist watch list and spending the first months dumping all over Riyadh and this administration was an ideological goal and ideological projects die hard, but it better die before American servicemen and women do. Because nothing makes an American president look more hapless than presiding over that kind of a debacle. And we're rapidly approaching that point. But we may be disappointed in the professionalism of our commander-in-chief and his subordinates. But you will not be disappointed with the professional quality of your cookware if you're using made-in products. If you're considering the pros and cons of different cookware brands, you should know that made-in has more of the pros. Pros like Tom Caliccio, Nancy Silverton, Brooke Williamson, and many other professional chefs who all trust their cooking to made-in cookware. Fact is, made-in has a long-standing relationship with professional chefs. The company evolved from a 100-year-old kitchen supply business and works with multi-generational makers to craft each piece. They make exactly what demanding chefs are looking for, including a wide selection of curated products from carbon steel to stainless clad, plus plateware, glassware, and more. But perhaps the biggest pro is that Maiden is sold online and delivered to your door all for a fraction of the price of other top brands. If you want to take your cooking to the next level, invest in Maiden cookware. Once you try it, you'll be a Maiden pro too. The editors listeners, all of you editors listeners, you'll get 10% off full priced items from Maiden. For full details, visit maidencookware.com slash editors. That's M-A-D-E-I-N cookware dot com slash editors. So we got some moderately interesting polling over the weekend, I say advisedly. CBS News YouGov surveys of uh, GOP primary voters in Iowa and New Hampshire uh, reinforce what's been pretty much the dynamic throughout this race. Trump is in a commanding position in both states, more in Iowa than New Hampshire. But this poll confirmed that the race is, it, it confirmed that the race is slipping away from Ron DeSantis in Iowa, which we've seen in other polls. Um, and he has a, Donald Trump has a prohibitive 58% support, although most of that support does not come from self-described only Trump voters. So there could be some soft support there for Trump in Iowa, although the trajectory of the race has shown Donald Trump gaining, not declining. So read into that what you will. In New Hampshire, however, Nikki Haley appears to be surging. And Trump is modestly declining. Nikki Haley wins almost 30% support in that poll among New Hampshire Republican primary voters, which is a 18-point surge from their survey from September. And Trump's support declined by 6%, although he still has 44% in that survey. And theoretically, Nikki Haley has some room to run because she's one of the most liked candidates in the field, even better liked than Donald Trump among Republicans in New Hampshire. So, Charlie, this is this is a too faint of a light to even call it a false dawn, but it's a glimmer of a bare suggestion that we could possibly have something approximating a competitive primary, right? I mean, I see that and I'll, I'm willing to indulge it, but there's so much resistance to the notion that this is anything other than finished before a single vote has been cast. Not just Trump supporters, not just DeSantis supporters, but Democrats, they regard anything 
that even looks like a suggestion that the primary could be competitive as a contemptible delusion. We should all agree that everything we're seeing is nothing at all. And even to entertain the prospect that it's something is um, insane. Yeah, there's a paradox there. I understand entirely why Trump voters would want to make the primaries seem as if they were a fait accompli. It helps to have momentum, and one way of generating momentum is to demoralize your opposition. Of course, Trump acolytes are going to poo-poo any notion of competition. It's less obvious why so many left-leaning journalists engage in this two-step, though. On the one hand, they insist that Donald Trump must be rejected by the Republican Party, that the Republican Party is at fault for having indulged him this long. Two sentiments I agree with. And on the other, they laugh at anyone who claims that there's any hope whatsoever of that happening. This podcast has been singled out for this treatment by certain figures who demand that we all oppose Trump. Which is, by the way, only engaging in, uh, we're trying to avoid a failure of imagination. It's basically a thought experiment. And even the experiment is rejected as as just irresponsible. Right. Yeah, so I was going to say, they, they demand that we reject Trump, which I personally do. Not because they asked, though. And then laugh. If you say anything other than that Trump has a 100% chance of winning. Leaving aside media criticism, maybe there is a glimmer of hope. No, I found your post convincing. I want to, of course. <laughs> I, I'm I got primed. a lot of wish casting. It was called wish casting. I put in no fewer than two disclaimers there that this is extremely unlikely. Nevertheless, yeah. it's worth entertaining the sequence of events that would well, have to produce it, that outcome, but, all of which are very unlikely. There's the paradox, of course, because in one breath, people will call it wish casting, and in the other, they will insist that you don't wish for it and are secretly trying to get Trump elected, and that every criticism of Trump that you make, along with your criticisms of Joe Biden, are actually part of a clandestine attempt to convey your real, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But on the merits of it, I have articulated so many times on this podcast that I'm probably boring our listeners, the two theories of the next six months. And perhaps it bears repeating. One of them is that the whole thing is smoke and mirrors and that Trump's just going to win. And the other one is that it's too early and it's smoke and mirrors in the other direction and that actually we're going to have a fight on our hands and that it's possible that Trump loses Iowa and then loses New Hampshire. And then we go to South Carolina where Nikki Haley is from. And in the meantime, Trump has become publicly, visibly erratic. Now, I don't know the answer, because I don't understand the debate. I don't pretend to know why people are clinging to Donald Trump. I get asked this all the time. People say, you write about politics for a living. Can you explain to me why Donald Trump is running away with this primary. No. I can tell you what other people say, but I can't explain it to you in any useful sense because I'm baffled by it as well. Is there a possibility that Nikki Haley is surging in New Hampshire? Yeah. There absolutely is. I'm skeptical, as you know, of a lot of the analysis of elections because I'm not convinced that most people think like analysts think they think. I think momentum and habit and intuition and affection and events play an enormous role that you just can't quantify. A few years ago, we talked a lot about lanes. It's not a terrible way of looking at the different factions within the party or the issues that animate primary voters. But lanes seem to matter less once voters have decided they like or dislike somebody. If 
a candidate can create a connection with an electorate, that electorate will often ignore the things about the candidate they don't like or even vote for them despite their own convictions. So, yeah, it can absolutely happen. As you say, the refusal to accept that is a combination of motivated reasoning and a lack of imagination. And the work in which those people who are sketching out the possible other outcomes other than a trump victory that is are engaged in ought to be read and acknowledged and valued and then placed into the broader context which is that if history is anything to go by donald trump's just gonna win jim i want to get your take on the state of the primary race as evinced in these polls but you also spent the morning jolt uh, today, analyzing a really interesting New York Times Siena survey that came out this morning. There's a lot to chew on there. Um, some of its findings include uh, confirmation of what we're seeing from other polls that a lot of core Democratic demographics are drifting into Donald Trump's column. He leads Joe Biden by 59 to 43% uh, among young people in this, in this survey, um, contributing to Trump's Two-point lead over Joe Biden among registered voters, 46 to 44%. But among likely voters, they applied a likely voter screen to filter out unreliable voters or voters with unreliable voting patterns. And they found a very different result there um, in which Joe Biden is actually pulling ahead. And most interestingly, they they surveyed non-2020 voters and 2020 voters, people who cast their ballot in the last presidential election. And among people who didn't turn out in 2020, Trump leads by a staggering 22%. But among people who turned out in 2020, Joe Biden is beating Trump by six points. A lot of caveats there. But what do you make of it? Well, first of all, before I go any further, Noah, I must say that transition to the made-in ad was as smooth as Billy D. Williams. Spectacular. Um, I'm borrowing from uh, my yeah. uh, my former boss, John Podhoritz's transition techniques into live mm-hmm. reads. It's uh, he's, he's a master of the craft. Right. Um, first tackling the, the New York Times Siena poll. The, the first thing is that the article in the New York Times that runs with this poll entirely frames it as Joe Biden having a problem with young voters who are upset about his stance on Israel and Palestine and Gaza and in the case, in the case of the overall electorate, that is not even remotely close to Joe Biden's biggest problem. Joe Biden's biggest problem are the economy and inflation and the fact that prices are still high and everybody can feel it. You see it in home mortgage rates. You see it in car prices. You see it in grocery bills. You see it in gas prices. Yeah, product after product, part of life after part of life. You know, things are still really expensive and people feel like they're not getting ahead. And Biden can talk about the unemployment rate until the cows come home. Uh, it's not going to matter. That's not what people are worried about right now. The second one is the border and immigration. And, you know, as I put it in today's jolt, like if if Biden makes progress on those two, he's got a good shot of beating Trump. If he does not do it, make any progress on either of those issues in the next 12 months or so, or I guess 10 months, he's toast. That That's, that's the ball game right now. Israel and Palestine and Gaza, you know, 1% of the respondents said that that was the most important issue to them in this survey. And you put say, oh, well, how about young people? Okay, amongst those 18 to 29, 3%. This is a really niche issue. And I'm not saying it doesn't matter. I'm not saying it I'm just saying like it's not the issue that is the front and foremost in people's minds as they're thinking about the 2024 election. Just, you know, just accept that. You know, Russia and Ukraine is not the number one issue. That was less than 1%. Uh, China was at less than 1%. I don't think any of us would say these are not important issues. It's just not what people are thinking about. When they go to the grocery store every you know a couple of days, like oh my god, everything's expensive. So, um, regarding your your theory on Nikki Haley, I don't want to poo poo your analysis, Noah. I I think I would characterize Ooh, the scenario you describe as a glimmer of a glimpse of a hint <laughs> of a flicker of a gleam of a possibility of a competitive race. Um, look, it, it needs a couple things to happen. The first, I think you're right. I, I don't want to say DeSantis is toast. I think we just say that all the numbers are looking pretty bad. Uh, Jeff Rowe just departed. It sounds like there's a huge amount of infighting. None of that's good news. I also would point out that like 
some like I feel a certain degree of sympathy for DeSantis because he's done a lot of things that traditionally would help you in Iowa. He did the full Grassley. He's been to 99 counties. As far as we can tell, that hasn't done any good. They spent a ton of money on TV and radio advertising. Hasn't moved the needle a bunch. He got endorsed by Governor Kim Reynolds. Didn't help. Like none of these things that usually help you in politics are helping in this. And in fact, it looks like Trump is gaining ground. So if the Iowa caucuses occur, Trump wins big and DeSantis is really disappointing. I don't know if DeSantis will drop out. I do think that if he loses big and bad, like whether or not he drops out, his campaign is effectively over. Because if it's not going to, if you can't gain traction in Iowa, where are you going to gain traction? Florida? You know, like I, it's very hard to see where DeSantis goes from there. So what Nikki Haley needs is A, the DeSantis supporters in New Hampshire to say, oh, well, our guy's not, this guy's not going anywhere. I don't want Trump, so I'm going to jump on the Nikki Haley bandwagon. Which I, think, I don't think it's a guarantee. I don't think that DeSantis voters are automatically anti-Trump voters. I think some of them liked DeSantis, and a lot of them don't. You know, when, I, when I posted the, I pitched the idea of a unity ticket between these two, a lot of DeSantis supporters are like, I can't stand her. She's the worst. Neocon warmonger, blah, blah, blah. You know, not my t- So I, I don't know that there's any way to get the DeSantis voters into the, the Nikki Haley pile. Uh, it would also be helpful if Chris Christie left the race. We editorialized, Chris Christie, it's time to hang it up. I didn't see Chris Christie respond. I didn't see a lot of people other responding. I think it's because a lot of people forgot that Chris Christie is in this race. And he's really a one-state candidate. And he's really only a 10% in uh, New Hampshire. But Nikki Haley would sure as heck like to have that 10% in her pile. And that would put her at a much more competitive level with Trump. And I think I think for Nikki Haley to really have, you know, to, for this to become a competitive race, I think Nikki, am I crazy for saying Nikki Haley's got to win New Hampshire? That even if she loses by one or 2%, that, you know, that's not going to help that much? Maybe I'm being too skeptical. No, I think that's but. probably right because she's going into South Carolina, which is has a Trumpy electorate. I mean, right. They like, it's, they like know, her, they know her, but yeah, yeah. momentum would have to really... And I characterize South Carolina as winner take all. It's not quite winner take all. You get a whole bunch for winning the statewide and then you get like by congressional district. But if you're winning statewide, you're probably winning a bunch of the, you know, the congressional districts. So it's conceivable she goes to South Carolina and, you know, gets walloped there. So I don't want to, uh, I don't, I don't want to rain on anybody's parade, but I don't, the path ahead is tough and she needs a bunch of stuff to break her way. Um, We'll see what happens, uh, but I, you know, we're, we're a couple weeks away. But the other thing that's weird is that it is mid to late December, and the Iowa caucuses are January 15th, less than a month away, January fifteenth, and it does it, does it feel like we're in the middle of a presidential primary to you guys? It, it, to me, it feels like this is a almost a non-election year. That it, it, there's no passion. Everybody feels like this thing is done, and maybe analysis like mine is part of the problem. But you know, I. For, for Iowa to get competitive, DeSantis needs to jump about 15 points. For Iowa to get competitive, Donald Trump needs to drop about 15 points. And you just rarely see that kind of stuff happen in the final month. Yeah, no, we've seen some indications that people are dropping out of the political cycle just because it's unfathomably boring right now. Um, and also the stakes are really low in as much as nobody seems to be focused at all on what happens after Election Day 2024. It's like... Election is is all that matters. No one is looking beyond it. Democrats and Republicans alike. It is just a contest, and it's almost entertainment for those who are consumed by it, which is an ever declining population. One brief thought on the New York Times Siena poll: um, it's something we've been seeing a lot in surveys, which is all these big shifts among core Democratic demos, young people, Black voters, drifting away from Joe Biden and into John, Donald Trump's column. And I would think we would see outward signs of this kind of big realignment, signs that we saw in, for example, 2016 in the real world among white working class voters. And there's generally very little evidence of it beyond survey data. So I'm reluctant to put too much stock into it. Moreover, um, these 2024 head-to-heads show consistently that Donald Trump is averaging roughly where he was in 2020 at about 47%. That's exactly the percent of the vote, the popular vote that he got in the 2020 election. And the Democrats say with some justification that all those voters who are dissatisfied with Joe Biden will come home next November 
because they are coming home now. They came home in special elections and midterms and their electoral prospects suggest that Joe Biden will be stronger next year than he looks on paper now. And I think there's a lot of evidence for that. Republicans have decided that Donald Trump is a lock. He can't lose. It's suggestive of in every survey of Republican voters, they think he's most likely to beat Joe Biden. Focus groups, they say he's most likely to beat Joe Biden. But this time, Siena survey demonstrates that it is far from a lock, um, that they've decided to play 2024 on the hardest possible difficulty level. And, you know, they'll they'll get the game that they want to play. And it just looks like it's going to be a frustrating experience. Turning now from the uh, the inexplicable to the slightly more inexplicable, but with a little bit more grossness to it. Um we had an apparently an episode of congressional porn, for lack of a better term. Uh, late Friday, the Spectator's gossip columnist, known only as Cockburn, who's a fun read and you should read him, um, published a perfectly reasonable piece entitled, Please Stop Taking Nudes in the Halls of Congress. The story it described was far less demure. It uh, described a graphic video that was filmed in a Senate conference building in the Hart Senate office where the Senate Judiciary Committee meets, uh, in which a male Senate staffer engaged in sexual conduct with another man and was revealed to, and I'm quoting, be, quote, naked but for a jockstrap on all fours facing away from the camera. Um, The video itself was soon uncovered by the Daily Caller, and it very much fits the description that Cockburn gave. I didn't watch it. I'm sure nobody else here watched it, right? Right. Oh, right. <laughs> Jim, this Senate staffer worked for Ben Cardin's office, and he's since been let go, and law enforcement has been informed, and Ben Cardin seems genuinely peeved, called mm-hmm. it a breach of trust, and I believe Eventually. Him, I mean, he's frustrated. Took him about two but, days. First day, it's yeah. like, I, this person's been let go, and I'm not saying anything further. Boy, that shows him. You know, I've seen so Vulcans this, react I mean, more strongly than that. But what's this? There's a broader thing going on here. We've got yeah. real problems with young people. The White House interns yeah. are in revolt. They think they're matter. They're publishing open letters to the president. Yeah. Young staffers are protesting in masks in front of the White House. Now they're filming gay porn in the, in the Judiciary Committee office. What what's happening here? Yeah. So Monday, hey, I debated writing the writing Monday's jolt about it. Wrote about uh, the China China viral outbreak instead. Don't worry, it's not COVID part two, 2.0, just for everybody. If I casually mentioned that, everybody freaks out. No, no, it's, yeah. Um, and, and I turned into a corner piece and turned into a long one. And I, I contemplated the argument of people who are going to say, this is an ugly, bad thing. Don't make a bigger deal out of it than it is. Just, you know, let's, let's, let's it's an ugly chapter. Let's brush it aside. And you've never heard of this staffer before. You're never going to hear from him again. Every staff director at every single organization, whether it's Washington or across the country, everybody's got a, you're not going to believe what this intern did stories. Now, usually it's not as bad as this, but everybody, you know, young people, they're full of political passion, short on common sense. Everybody's had, you know, young people do dumb things. This stands out as the worst. I I looked it up and I think it's like there are about 12,500 legislative staffers on Capitol Hill. One of them's got to be the dumbest. One of the entire group, one has to be the dumbest mother blanker in the entire group. And we found it. This is the one. This is the dumbest guy in this entire group. So I, 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 I rationally get the, it's one nut job. Don't make a huge deal out of this. On the other hand, I think this is a big deal. And I think this, I, I was very peeved to see Cardin with his minimalist, it sounds like the lawyers were saying, don't say anything kind of response to this. If anybody deserved to get furiously denounced uh, on the way out the door, it's this guy, right? Like, they, what the hell is wrong with you? How could you possibly think this was okay? And uh, I can't think of anything. You know, uh, maybe the January 6th rioters topped this, but that's not very much. And I, I realize I should avoid the term top. Um, the, the idea of like, you, you, you're you sh- demonstrating <laughs> I just got that. That utter- two seconds again. It's a joke, joke grenade. I top it, throw it, three seconds later, it goes <laughs> off. Um, that like you you hate if you do that you you hate your job you hate your boss you hate the US Senate you hate everything everything involved in that you you hold it in utter contempt otherwise you wouldn't do that right 
And I talked about you know, like the, like there's a reason we go to certain places and we treat them with respect, right? Go to church, you, you use the holy water, at least, you know, if you're Catholic, you're supposed to. You're in a synagogue, you're supposed to cover your head if you're a man. You're in karate, you, you bow before you enter the dojo, right? These are things you do because you're saying this, this place is important. This place matters and that there's something more important than what I feel like doing at any given moment because of the importance of God or uh, what we're taught in karate or something like that. Like we have to behave a certain way. Otherwise we are dishonoring these things. The Senate is not a sacred place in the sense of the church, but it is an important place. It's one of the reasons people reacted so strongly when Fetterman wanted to not have a dress code, right? This is where our government is run. This is where the place where, where we as a people come together and we try to pass laws and we try to make the, the country a better place. When you go and you do that, you're saying, I hate all of this. And Cardin should furiously denounce this guy. If anybody did, this would. And also, for what it's worth, this guy on the LinkedIn page really tried to play the victim, tried to say that this was homophobia. Uh, tried to say basically that, you know, he wasn't the bad guy for doing what he did in that chamber. You're the bad guy because you noticed and because you objected to it. Now that is, you know, like this is, should have a spitting hot fire. Um, and I think it's worth taking at least one news cycle to send a message to everybody else who, who either works on Capitol Hill or wants to work on Capitol Hill. You have to treat this place with respect. You have to manage decorum. You have to treat this place like it matters. Otherwise, all is lost. Otherwise, you don't stand for anything. You're, you're indistinguishable from an animal and, and animal's appetites. And so I, I, I'm glad Cardin, a day late and a dollar short, says that he's angry and feels betrayed and all that kind of stuff. But like, man, if there was ever a case where like you, you know, this served more than the, we're not going to say anything more about this, this was the case. And I think there was something, you know, a little reflect. It also reminded me of the um, trans activist at the White House who bared breasts. It just, you know, like th th these places matter and you do not help your cause or yourself or anything you claim to believe in when you treat those places with such obvious contempt and disrespect. Charlie, I want to get your take on um, what, what Jim mentioned, which is the, the effort to to find some sort of a victimization angle for the perpetrator here. There's some who have supported him, uh, uh, you know, sort of from their remove by saying that the release of this video is functionally revenge porn. And the guy he put it up there. <laughs> there. Like he if the, you don't want if you don't want that up there, don't record yourself. That's that's the, rule number one. Yeah. The point is that it's a victimization narrative. This is the only language they speak. They speak victimization and per, persecution and oppression, and that is it. Those are the only sources of sympathy. So they have to find that angle, right? And the press once again was unable to report on it as a story, the details of which were known and conceded by all. The press line was linked to. He was linked to this video. Well, in the sense that he was in it, yes. And <laughs> yeah. uh, that I, is indeed a link. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't watch it because I didn't want to see the link. But I <laughs> find this sort of question... Almost unbelievable, Noah, in the sense that when I first started writing about politics, I would not have included this within the list of things I expected to be invited to explain. Why do you think, Charles, we should have lower taxes? That is a reasonable question. Tell me what the founders thought about the Second Amendment. That's a reasonable question. Should you film yourself having sex in the Senate and then put it on the internet? <laughs> it's not. You know, sometimes we do get somewhat carried away by the absurdly permissive culture that the press creates for people it likes. And this is a good example of it. I have read a bunch of pieces in the last week suggesting that it's homophobic to think this is a bad idea, that it's prudish or puritanical, that this is revenge porn, that if you compare this to some of the things Congress has done in the past, it's less bad. No. Surely... 
we can agree instantly, immediately, without delay, that you should not film yourself having sex in the Senate and then put it on the internet. I am somewhat cautious about using William F. Buckley Jr.'s line about becoming so open-minded that your brain falls out, insofar as I worry that it is sometimes utilized to justify speech restrictions. I know he didn't mean that. But sometimes people will say, we don't need to debate that. And that gets my heckles up. I, I am heckled by this. But in this case, it seems quite clearly to apply. <laughs> Anyone who thinks that this is an open question has made a very large incision of, in their brain and, and is sucking it out with a vacuum cleaner. I mean, this is bad behavior. There is no excuse for it. Any civilization has to condemn this. I don't know what more there is to say than that. This is one of the foundational things on which we should all be able to agree. This is, this is so basic as a principle that you wouldn't be told that. When I started at National Review... Rich Lowry didn't sit me down and say, well, here's your desk and here's your chair and here's the meeting. But by the way, we do have a no filming yourself having sex and then putting it on the internet policy at National Review. This would not have occurred. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just, I just think it's amazing that, that there has been anything other than laughter followed by condemnation, followed by that guy going away and never applying for a job ever again. And by the way, on that, somebody pointed out, and it's a great point, that he is, no pun intended, somewhat screwed because he has a really distinctive name. He's not called John Smith. If you're called John Smith and you have sex in the Senate, film it and put it on the internet, you don't, when at Starbucks get looks if you say my name's John Smith. There's just so many of them. Nobody is going to say, well, I bet that was the John Smith in the video. But maybe you have it in front of you. I can't remember what it is. But he has a really <laughs> unusual name. It's like Herbert von Mankinsenken or something. And he's going to show up at a restaurant and say, oh, I have a reservation <laughs> for Herbert von Mankinsenken. And they're going to say, ooh, what a story. Yeah, very bad judgment, but more than that. I really do think it's this is of a piece with the revolt of the White House interns and the uh, insubordination that Joe Biden and other Democrats have had to endure from uh, their younger staffers over the last couple of months. And I don't want to be the old guy tisking a generation that's been raised without respect for their surroundings. But this isn't just it's not apathy. It's, as Jim says, outright contempt for the circumstances that they've inherited. And as Jim also said, I'm pretty sure all these people would observe the conventions that preserve decorum if they were in, a, for example, a mosque, but not for the symbols of America, not for the symbols of American governance and the civic compact that we all inherited. Uh, it's, it's a level of disregard and ingratitude for their station and what they've been bequeathed by the people who sacrificed so much so they could have the lives they presently lead that I, I find it profoundly disturbing and pretty disgusting on this particular account. But with that, it is time for right, a plug. Before you move on, Noah, sure. can I just point out that Charlie has just given every Capitol Hill staffer named John Smith the ability to say, yes, <laughs> I can get away with this. And impugned anyone named Herbert. Sorry, Herbert. Yeah. No, Herbert <laughs> von Mankiewicz. <laughs> Not just Herbert. Otherwise, you know. Anyway, do go on. Of course. So it's time for a plug. Not that kind of plug. Get your mind out of the gutter. It's a plug for ah! our Plus. Ah! It's your way around our meter paywall. What the heck happened? I'm away for a week and suddenly this show. Yeah. <laughs> That's almost Christmas. We're around. The editors to after me. dark. <laughs> and our Plus is your way around the meter paywall. You are opening incognito windows. You are stealing your mom's password. It's all unnecessary. Pay a little bit of money. You get all our very important uh, analysis and commentary and the news that you have come to rely on from National Review and its crack staff. Stop taking all this time <laughs> and energy to try to avoid the metered paywall. Just pay a little bit of cash and you get everything you need from our happy band of warriors. 
And with that, it's time for a couple of light items. Charlie, you uh, you were engaged in a series of uh, follies, I guess I can describe them. <laughs> okay, let's separate this from the previous topic. <laughs> they weren't those sort of follies. I had a great example of how easy it is to make something out of nothing and thereby create a great memory with your kids when one of the children who was at our house the other day for a play date threw uh, this, I suppose it's a plastic and foam aeroplane that we have. Oh, I know exactly what you're talking about. And they are tailor-made to get stuck in a tree. Yeah. We've all had that experience. And she threw it up in the tree. She actually has a great arm. She's a really remarkable athlete. But the upshot of that was that she threw this plane up into this tree. And then I was tasked with getting it down, which I did at first with the help of a tennis ball, which I got stuck in the tree next to it. So then I had the tennis ball stuck in a tree and the airplane stuck in a tree. And eventually I went and got a soccer ball. And after throwing it about 30 times, I managed to get both the tennis ball and the plane dislodged. And the feeling of euphoria among everyone who was involved in this process was remarkable. And all the more so given that it was a problem that we had created for ourselves from scratch. But it didn't matter. I almost wanted to throw the plane back up into the tree just so we could have the experience of getting it down again. That's an adorable story. Um, Jim, you finally caught up on the movie of the year, right? Highest, oh, yeah. One of the highest grossing, if not, no, it wasn't the highest grossing, but it was up there. Highest it was up there. Grossing not adult Barbie. film of the year. Yeah. Yeah. Oppenheimer. Which, by the way, um, I managed to see the other, this is kind of a digression. What a bizarre woman that Greta Gerwig is. I couldn't follow that film at all. The Barbie movie. And if anybody else saw it, it was just a, a weird digression into her bizarre psyche. And I don't know why people loved it as much as they did. Have not seen Barbie. Can't tell you about it. So um, I was, I was always intrigued by Oppenheimer. Uh, I think Christopher Nolan movies are always interesting, always exciting, always, you know, something to, to grab you. I also have the viewpoint that like uh, Christopher Nolan makes, particularly looking at this movie and Dunkirk, really fascinating, well-acted, well-directed uh, stories of historical drama. And then he chooses to edit it in a blender. And okay, well, what if I, what if I began at the ending and then we skip ahead 20 years and then we go back five and, you know, it's like a time travel movie. You're constantly veering back and forth and throughout, uh, throughout these different things. And I'm thinking my, my attitude towards Dunkirk, I liked the movie. I just felt like he had a perfectly good st- movie that could have been told in sequence. And instead we're, we're flipping three weeks, uh, two, three days, you know, kind of stuff. Oppenheimer is very similar. I think it was great performances, uh, really riveting. Um, you know, everything was great. I'm watching this with my family. Uh, both my teenagers were, were interested in it. And we'd heard that there are, you know, nudity and sex scenes and we weren't sure it was appropriate. Well, let me tell you, those nudity and sex scenes, I mean, they're not what you'll find in a Senate hearing. But they're they're pretty uh, they're pretty graphic, so just be aware of that. And I mentioned this. My friend's going to kill me for mentioning this. So my friend's parents heard about the movie, thought it was good, and took their priest to see it. And then there are explicit sex scenes. So I kind of feel like taking your priest to see Oppenheimer should be some sort of saying when when things go terribly awry and you end up in an embarrassing situation. Uh, apparently, I have no word on whether the priest liked it, um, but it, you know, pr- apparently the lunch afterward was quiet and awkward. So uh, sorry, my friend. Sorry, my friend's parents. Hey, sort of mistake we all could have made because we're watching this as a family and then, ah, okay, all right, we're going to fast forward through this scene. We're going to get through it. Um, enjoyable. Like I said, I could have, I think if it had been told in sequence, it would have been every bit as enjoyable and maybe even ease, more enjoyable or, or easier to follow. Um, but look, there's a reason it lives up to the hype. Uh, Christopher Nolan does not do anything halfway. He does not do anything cheap. And my understanding is he's so committed to authenticity. He doesn't like using computer-generated effects. Was, was I correct that they actually set off an atomic bomb? It, it looked like well, they did. They, they could have fooled me. It wasn't atomic, but they did set off a very large bomb. I don't think there's any CGI at any point in the movie. Hmm. It, it certainly didn't look like it. So, yeah. 
<clears throat> Jimmy just reminded me of a moment of trauma from my childhood when my father took myself and my grandma to go see Time Cop, which, if you recall, <laughs> has an extremely graphic sex scene. Um, and it was very awkward sitting next to my grandma. Or... <laughs> <laughs> um, so I had a birthday this weekend family treated me lovely I went to go get my annual seafood tower from a local steakhouse it was a great way to start a very uh, otherwise um, forgettable year 42 although it's a, it's a big year for intergalactic travelers as far as I know time now for editors picks Jim what's your pick so I'm going to do a twofer because they're kind of both interacting and dealing with the same topic. Uh, I wrote a morning jolt about uh, basically expressing skepticism at the assertion of Liz Cheney in an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal that if Trump is elected, uh, that there's a good chance in 2028, he, will, he and the U.S. military will cancel all future presidential elections and he will stay in office. And I, I you know, and by the way, I am never Trump, never voted for the guy, never will, you know, but I looked at it, I was like, you know, I, I'm skeptical of that. And I don't like this idea that the U.S. military is a bunch of automatons who obey whatever orders Trump gives them. They are obligated to disobey unlawful orders. And hey, we're canceling the elections and I'm staying in power. It would be inherently an unlawful uh, order. From this, God, I got everybody and their brother tearing, up, tearing into me. I got the Trump fans saying you're being way too credulous about the idea that he's an evil dictator. And a whole bunch of the anti-Trump fans are like, why are you defending Trump? We know you have a MAGA hat hidden in your, your home. You're, you know, all kind of stuff. So first of all, Charlie's The American System Works and it will work if Trump wins again. I recommend everybody read it. Charlie has faith in our checks and balances and does not believe, like, like if you believe we're on the verge of turning into a, a fascist dictatorship, uh, then the country's lost. The, 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 we, you know, the basically if you feel like a constitution, you know, doesn't exist. You know, you you end up in the Rob Reiner situation where you're saying, well, in order to save democracy, you only have one choice to vote for. And if you vote against this person, you're destroying democracy. To preserve the right to vote, we must destroy your right to vote for whoever you want. Um, and then kind of Dan McLaughlin, um, just yesterday last, or just last night, did a nice summary, talked about what I'd written, Michael uh, and Charlie had written, and he just kind of sums it all out. And he makes it very clear. When you say, hey, we have checks and balances you know, I don't think we should just hand wave them away or poo-poo them. It's not saying vote for Trump. It's not saying Trump is good. It's not saying an endorsement for Trump. Um, so I think I just, Dan and Charlie just really walked through people uh, with a clarity that apparently I failed to do in my original morning jolt post. Um, and I just, uh, everybody should read both those posts. Very good. Charlie, what's your pick? Just for the record, I thought you laid it out perfectly. I just wanted to publicly agree with you because well, that's allowed. I know that's that fine. Well, I know that when you say that you don't like Trump and you think that he has tried all manner of unconstitutional things, you get accused of all all sorts of of horrible um, things. And I and I just wanted to say, no, actually, it's totally reasonable to say I'm not voting for the guy. And yeah, he does actually try things that are illegal, but that the system will hold. They're not mutually exclusive. I am going to pick. We need a colorblind approach to race relations by, I think it's Andre Archie, uh, which tracks the focus on character and merit in the Western tradition through Martin Luther King's speech and Frederick Douglass. And before that, it is imperative for the future of the United States, in my view that we hew to that. The problem in American history was not the idea of colorblindness, but that it wasn't adhered to, that we promised something we didn't deliver. Uh, this piece is a useful reminder of what I consider to be probably the most important uh, question facing the country. My pick is from the magazine, which is a great issue where I have the honor of having the cover essay. You should go pick it up and check it out. But it is from my former colleague, Christine Rosen, who writes about Nikki Haley's campaign entitled Nikki Haley's High Heels. And she notes the conspicuous absence of rah-rah feminism around the Haley campaign, despite being a woman, being a minority woman, which Christine attributes not just to bias, but Chris, uh, Nikki Haley's failure to endorse her own victimization is pretty astute. Uh, indeed, the press seems to think that 
uh, Haley's accidents of birth are a detriment to her success in the GOP primary, we will see. That's going to do it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or account of this show without the express written permission of National Review magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Schutte, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Jim. Thank you to the absent Rich Lowry, and thank you to our advertiser today, Made in Cookware. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors, and we'll see you next time. 